Good afternoon, everyone. In the last sermon we heard on the subject of the two covenants, that is the old and the new covenants, we were discussing the reasons God gave the old covenant to begin with. The old covenant in this terminology was the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And as we discussed, the overall reason for the institution of the Old Covenant was because of transgressions, as it tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. But under that overall reason for the institution of the Old Covenant, there were a number of specific ancillary reasons for the covenant besides and in the previous sermon, we discussed some of these reasons. Now, before we proceed, I want to try to encourage you to listen carefully because I realize there's a lot of detail in this subject that is being discussed. Some of it can be confusing, if you're, especially if you're not listening closely and carefully or if you're not really all that familiar with the subject. And so I hope you will listen carefully to, to what is said because otherwise you may get lost in, in some of these uh, details that are being discussed. And you may want to go back over this series of sermons in the future when they're posted on our website and listen again. And perhaps that will help clear up any questions you might have. You can also feel free to contact me if you have specific questions and I'll try to help you with that to the extent that I'm able. But the reasons we discussed last week for the giving of the Old Covenant was number one, the law or the Old Covenant was given to separate and preserve a people for God. And in doing so, to preserve all of mankind from utter destruction. Leviticus 20 and verse 24, we read, I am the Lord your God who is speaking to Israel, who has separated you from the peoples. So God separated them and established the covenant with them. And as it says in Galatians 3 and verse 23, before faith came, we were kept, meaning Israel, was kept, and actually the whole world, an extended sense, we were kept or preserved under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. So the covenant was given in part to separate a people for God and to preserve them and the world from destruction because of their transgressions. A second reason the law was given was as a teaching device. It was to serve as an educational tool to educate the Israelites in, in the ways of God. And in Galatians 3 and verse 24, we read, therefore, the law. And remember that when we read this word law, it can have any one of several meanings. In many cases, in Paul's epistles especially, it refers to specifically the covenant. The covenant that God made with Israel 
in the wilderness. And that is the way the Jews commonly used that term, one of the ways that they used it, and due to this day, to mean the covenant relationship that was established between God and Israel at Mount Sinai. And this is how Paul is using the term here. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster, as it is in some versions, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. A third reason the law was given is as a form of knowledge and truth, a pattern, an outline, you might, might say, of knowledge and truth. As Paul wrote to the Jews in Rome, that they had the form of knowledge and truth in the law, that is, in the Old Covenant, in Romans 2 and verse 20. And the various features of the covenant, the laws that went with it, were a limited expression of eternal truths. And the physical features of the law of the Old Covenant were types of a greater reality, as Paul explains in Hebrews chapters 8 through 10. For example, the sacrifices were a type, among other things, of Christ's sacrifice. As Paul wrote in Hebrews 10 and verse 1, the law, that is the old covenant, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. It was a type, a figure of a greater reality. But from these types, we can induce the spiritual principles which lay behind them with the guidance of God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Now let's move on to a fourth reason for the giving of the Old Covenant. And the fourth reason is the teaching of the nature and effect of sin. The teaching of the nature and effect of sin. Now as we discussed previously, God and God alone has the prerogative of determining what is good and what is evil because he is the lawgiver, and that's what the law does. It defines what is good and what is evil. As we read in James 4 and verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And God's law tells us what righteousness is, and it teaches us what sin is. Now Israel had, for the most part, lost a knowledge of God's laws by the time of the Exodus. And the law of the Old Covenant was given partly to teach them what sin is, so that they would know what sin is. And it was given to them to teach each succeeding generation the same thing. As Paul wrote in Romans 3 and verse 15, by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. That is, we understand by the law what sin is because it tells us what sin is. Again, he said in Romans 7 and verse 7, I had not known sin, that is, he would not have understood what sin is, but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law said, you shall not covet. In other words, Paul would not have been able to discern that covetousness is a sin, except for the fact that it is identified as sin by the law. 
But the law did more than define sin. It also demonstrated through its applications that sinfulness is a dominant tendency of human nature apart from God's Spirit. Romans 5 and verse 20 tells us, Moreover, the law entered, again, that's the old covenant, that the offense might abound. The law entered, the old covenant was given, in other words, that the offense might abound. Now, that might seem somewhat contrary to what you might assume, that God gave the law to Israel that the offense might abound, but that is what we find in Scripture. How did the offense abound? And how does that relate to the giving of the law? If someone does not realize, has not been told or instructed, that a certain act is wrong, he can do it without any conscious awareness of sinning. It does not occur to him that he is sinning. As Paul said, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have uh, thought that covetousness, covetousness is sin, except the law tells me it's sin. And so people that don't know that covetousness is sin can covet, not be aware that they are sinning, and it does not affect their conscience. Their conscience is, even though they're sinning, their conscience is relatively undefiled. But once a person knows a particular act is wrong, if he goes ahead and commits the act again, and perhaps again and again, then it defiles his conscience and it becomes even more sinful than before in that respect. The more he commits the act from that time on, the more it warps and destroys his character. And yet the flesh is so weak that without the added strength of God's Spirit, one is bound to sin. Even when he knows it's wrong. People who are carnally minded will sin even when they know many of the things that they are doing are identified by the law as sin. They will lie, they will cheat, they'll steal, they'll do all kinds of things. Even when they have been told and understood that it is wrong. The fact is that God created mankind with an inherent need for His Spirit. And we'll discuss that in more detail later, but Paul explained in detail in Romans 7 how the law or the covenant which included the laws that were a part of that covenant, how the law exposes the nature and effect of sin. Paul wrote in Romans 7 and verse 5, when we were in the flesh, when we were in the flesh, that is before conversion, before repentance and conversion. When we were in the flesh, the motions, and the Greek could be translated here, sufferings, afflictions, or passions of sins, which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. 
the sufferings, afflictions, passions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Now, what is Paul actually saying here? There are, as is mentioned in Scripture, some of the things that Paul wrote are difficult to understand. They're not impossible to understand, but it does require insight and study and the guidance of God's Spirit to really understand some of the things that Paul wrote. But what is he saying? The sufferings, afflictions, passions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. He is saying that before the law was given, or I should say, is he saying, that before the law was given, everybody was pure and sinless? That everybody was loving his brother and not doing anything wrong until the law came? And then when the law was given, everyone all of a sudden started lusting and hating and, and cursing and destroying? No, that's not what he's saying. Consider, for example, that sexual lust is quite as active apart from any knowledge of the law as it is with the knowledge of the law, if anything, even more so. But the same is true of other sins, such as greed, jealous envy, hatred, and pretty much any other sin you can think of. The basic lusts to which all humans are subject prior to conversion proceed from the fleshly mind, not from the law. And Paul refers to this basic tendency of human nature, the fleshly nature of human beings, as the lust of the flesh, the lust that proceeds from our fleshly nature. In Galatians 5 and verse 16. And then he goes on in that chapter to list a number of sins which are of the flesh, the fleshly nature, the fleshly mind. So, sins do not proceed from the law specifically. So what was it that Paul meant when we were in the flesh, the motions, or the sufferings, afflictions, passions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death? First of all, Paul says, when we were in the flesh, and this is simply speaking of the time before conversion, when one becomes guided by God's Spirit rather than the impulses of the fleshly mind. But before conversion, then we are led by our fleshly nature, our lusts. And he draws the contrast in Romans 8 as of those who walk after the flesh or those who, on the other hand, walk after the Spirit. So in Romans 7 and verse 5, he is speaking of an effect which occurs in the mind of one who is not converted, one who is not yet walking after the Spirit. And it could apply in also to individuals that maybe are somewhat converted, but are still allowing themselves to be led by their fleshly nature more often than is acceptable in a person who has received God's Spirit. So what happens then to one who is in the flesh when he becomes conscious of being under the authority of the law? Paul says, 
the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. And the motions, or as we mentioned earlier, the word could be translated sufferings, afflictions, or passions. These are not ordinary lusts, but they are sufferings, afflictions, and or passions which are a reaction of a carnal mind to a knowledge of the law. That could also mean penalties, if you like, of sin which are imposed by the law. Both of these are included, but what Paul is emphasizing is the reaction of the mind through this chapter, Romans 7, is what he is discussing primarily throughout the chapter. So, what then are the sinful passions which owe their existence to a knowledge of the law? One could be a morbid guilt and fear of God's wrath. Not a fear of God, not a healthy fear of God, but a morbid guilt and fear of God's wrath. Guilt can be a constructive emotion if it leads one to repentance, but guilt can also lead to moroseness, to chronic depression and hostility. And this was the kind of fear that Adam and Eve suffered after they had sinned in the Garden of Eden. They did not want to face up to their sin and repent of it, but they rather sought to flee from the face of God. And this affliction of sin was prompted by the fact that they knew that they had sinned. They knew that they had broken God's commandment. And so they felt guilty. But rather than seeking to repent and seek God for forgiveness, they tried to run away from God. That can be one of the reactions of carnal mind to a knowledge of the law. The law, the instructions that God had given, starting with giving mankind instructions about his behavior in the Garden of Eden. The law was instrumental in the hatred of Cain for his brother, Abel. Cain, we are told, slew his brother because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, Cain was transgressing God's instructions, his commandments. His brother was obeying God's commandments. But rather than repentance, rather than repenting, given his awareness of the fact that he was doing evil, Cain rather murdered his brother out of guilt and envy and hatred. And these were products of a carnal mind occasioned by a knowledge of the law. David knew God's law. He knew his commandments. And yet before his repentance for a particular sin and an attitude into which he had fallen, he is said to have despised both the commandments of God and God himself. God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan after he had committed adultery with the wife of Uriah. And then he arranged to have Uriah killed to hide his sin. And so we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 7, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So David fell into this attitude feeling condemned for his actions, feeling guilty because of things that he knew were sinful. But until he finally repented, he got into a state of mind where he despised God's commandment. And he despised God. That's what God said. Enmity toward God. Despite toward God. Contempt for God. And a hatred of His law is another affliction or passion of sin taking occasion by, in a carnal mind by a knowledge of God's law. People don't react well often to an awareness that they are guilty of something. They will try to deny it. They'll lie about it. They will turn against the laws that have condemned them. They will turn against God because the law exposes their sins. And so God explains in Romans 8, beginning in verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, that, those, that is, those who are of a fleshly mind, who have, who have not been converted through God's Spirit. They have minds which are at enmity with God, and they cannot please God. The effect of an active awareness and knowledge of the law in a carnal mind, then, is the compounding of sin. The sins committed are not only those proceeding from ordinary fleshly lusts, but to those are added sins which are a result of the reaction of a carnal mind to the challenge and threat imposed by a knowledge of the law. And under those circumstances, sin committed becomes far more serious and destructive to the individual's character. Its effect is far more devastating and brings much more abundantly brings forth fruit unto death, as Paul wrote. And Paul reiterates that a few verses down where he says in Romans 7, sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of con concupiscence or evil desire or lust. For without the knowledge of the law, as it ought to be understood, without the knowledge of the law, sin was dead. That is, it had no effect on his conscience. He wasn't aware of sinning. And so he says, For I was alive without the knowledge of the law. Again, as this should be understood, 
I was alive without the knowledge of the law. That is, he had no feeling of being condemned. But when the knowledge of the commandment came, sin revived. That is, sin began to actively affect his conscience. He was aware of sinning. And I died. That is, he felt condemned in his own conscience. And the commandment, he goes on to say, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And the Greek here could be, the Greek translated deceived, could be translated thoroughly seduced, deceived, and cheated me. And by it slew me, that is, it defiled his conscience to the point of total self-condemnation. Now notice here that it was sin that deceived. It wasn't the law that deceived him. It was the law that led him to the feeling of being condemned. And sin taken occasion by the commandment seduced and deceived and cheated me and by it slew me. It defiled his conscience. And it can defile one's conscience to the point where, where one reaches the point of total self-condemnation. And this is due to the reaction of a carnal mind to a knowledge of the law. As Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful. That's the human heart, human nature, the carnal mind is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But does this then mean that the law itself is evil? No. This is part of the purpose that is served by the law. As Paul further explains, Romans 7, beginning with verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin might become exceedingly sinful. Now, think carefully about what Paul says here. He says, the law is good, but sin, that it might appear sin, that is, that it might become obvious what sin is. Through the law, working death in me by that which is good, the law condemns sin, and so it becomes apparent what sin is, but then, as we read, it leads to other problems. That sin might become exceedingly sinful. That's one of the purposes the law was given. That one of the purposes that the covenant included the laws of God, the Ten Commandments and other laws that God gave, especially the Ten Commandments and the other laws that get right to the heart of God's way of life. God intends that the law should expose sin. God intended for the law to challenge and threaten the carnal mind. 
so that as the mind reacted to it, sin might reach its culmination, where there would be no mistaking that sin results in condemnation and death. And when that point is reached, when the carnal mind becomes self-condemned, then under certain circumstances, it may want to escape from its slavery to sin and its awful consequences. The carnal mind can come to the point, finally, as Paul says, where it can sense that the law is good, as Paul writes in Romans 7, where it, where it can sense that the law is good and delights after the law is God, but it is still under condemnation, being aware of its condition of slavery to sin. And then the need for a power beyond the human fleshly mind becomes apparent. And the point of repentance has been reached. The law exposing the nature and effect of sin was designed to lead men to that point. It also exposes a weakness in human character and reveals the need for God's Spirit. God's Spirit is the factor which makes the difference between a carnal mind and a converted mind. And Paul goes on to discuss that in Romans chapter 8. And this leads us to the next reason, reason number five, if you're keeping count, for the giving of the Old Covenant. And that is to reveal the need for God's Holy Spirit. The Old Covenant was given in part to reveal the need for God's Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit, many people completely misunderstand what the Holy Spirit is. It is not a third person in a trinity. That's fiction. It's not something the Bible teaches. But the Holy Spirit, as the term is normally used in Scripture, is an invisible power, a force proceeding from God. It is a part of what God is, through which God can exercise His will throughout the universe. And God can also grant a measure of that same Spirit to human beings. And through that means, He can empower human beings to overcome their carnal nature so that they're no longer enslaved to their carnality. Jesus Christ told the apostles, or the ones who would become apostles, just before His ascension into heaven, you shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. You shall receive the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Paul wrote to Timothy, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Of power, of love, and a sound mind. A good analogy to use in helping you to understand what the Holy Spirit is like is the force of wind. Wind is invisible, but it can at times be a very powerful force. Harnessed and utilized, it can also do a great deal of work. Before steam engines and diesel engines and so forth, men would sail across the oceans on sailing ships that were powered by the wind. And it's not accidental that the same Hebrew word, ruach, is used for both wind and spirit because they are analogous to one another in certain respects. 
Although there are many facets to the use of God's Spirit, a primary use is the implanting of the character or the mind of God in the minds of human beings who willingly submit themselves to God's Spirit and to God. Now, God's Spirit does not seize you and take control of your mind against your will. God gave every person free moral agency. God gives us a mind and a will, and we can exercise it to resist God or to submit ourselves to God. But if we're willing to submit ourselves to God, then God can implant His mind in us. That is His character. The Holy Spirit is the power by which God is reproducing Himself. By which He is creating a family of children to be in His kingdom for forever. Children who will become like Him. Renewed, regenerated spiritually to grow into the spiritual likeness of God then eventually be changed from fleshly beings to spirit like God is spirit. And the Holy Spirit, which was symbolized by the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, was, contrary to what some imagine mistakenly, the Holy Spirit was made available to the very first man and woman. It has been available to mankind from the creation. But Adam rejected the Holy Spirit. He was commanded to eat of the trees of the garden, including the tree of life, which represents the Holy Spirit. As we read in Genesis 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, or as it is in Hebrew, eating you shall eat. This wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. Of every tree of the garden, you eating you shall eat. And that included the tree of life. The only exception was, as God instructed him, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the tree that represented God's prerogatives as the lawgiver. And so, in effect, God told Adam that he was having made available to him the Holy Spirit. And that he could have the gift through that spirit of eternal life. That's why it's called the tree of life. He could have had God's spirit granted to him and he could have been granted through that spirit eternal life life. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, God took away the free access to his spirit from Adam. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put his, out his hand, take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, God is not willing to give His Spirit to those who will not submit themselves to Him. He's not willing to give eternal life to those who reject His laws and rebel against Him, as Adam did. And so Adam was cut off from God's Spirit and the opportunity to receive it at that particular time. 
Now, whether he'll have other opportunities later where I'm not prepared to judge, but we do know what God says or what the Scripture says occurred at that time. God had warned Adam that if he partook of the tree that he was commanded not to partake of, instead of life, he would suffer death. Genesis 2 and verse 90, out of the ground, God, the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told him in verse 17 of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Because the wages of sin, as Paul wrote in Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And so God told Adam, in effect, that the only source of eternal life is his spirit. As Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, it is the spirit which gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. It is through the spirit of God that we can receive life. And that includes eternal life. In Romans 8, verse 10, Paul wrote, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So, sin produces death. God's Spirit produces righteousness and life. Now, Satan entered the picture in the Garden of Eden, as you know, and in the most colossal lie of all time, perhaps, he told Adam and Eve that there was another way to life. He told them that the way of disobedience and rebellion against God would give them powers that were equivalent to the power of God. And he told them, you shall not die. He told them, you shall not die if you disobey God, which was a lie. And he told them, God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, that is the tree that God had forbidden them, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That is, having the power to determine for yourself what is good or what is evil. To make your own rules, in effect. To decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And of course, mankind has been doing that ever since then. Satan, in effect, said that sin produces life. But sin does not produce life, it produces death. In James 1, verse 15, it says, When lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Life is produced only by the Spirit of God through righteousness. That is, eternal life. And perfect godly righteousness is possible only through the power of God's Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, verse 10, Paul again said, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And in Romans 8, and verses 3 and 4, he said that Christ condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We can't fulfill that law. We cannot fulfill the righteousness of the law apart from the, the Spirit of God. In verse 6 of Romans 8, he wrote, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That is, to, be, to have your mind motivated and empowered by the Spirit of God. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. He went on to say in Romans chapter 8, and verse, beginning with verse 7, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That is, those who have only a fleshly mind motivating them. But he went on to say, you are not in the flesh. That is, if you, speaking to those who are converted, he said, you are not in the flesh. That is, you, you are not limited to your carnal mind, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. So once God's spirit is dwelling in us, we are no longer enslaved by our fleshly nature. We can overcome it with the help of God's Spirit. We can be of a different mind. Now that leads us to the question, what about the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant? What about the Holy Spirit under the Old Covenant? Was spiritual conversion required under the Old Covenant? Was spiritual conversion even possible under the Old Covenant? Did the Old Covenant teach us anything about the Holy Spirit? Well, the fact is, spiritual conversion was not required under the Old Covenant. As stated before, it was a physical covenant given to a physical nation. That is, the, the, the covenant itself, although it had spiritual elements, was in a sense a physical covenant. The emphasis was on a physical matters that were typical of spiritual realities, but were nevertheless physical. And it was given to a physical nation, people who were unconverted. Perhaps the primary difference between the Old and New Covenants is that spiritual conversion is a requirement or a condition under the New Covenant, but it was not a condition of the Old Covenant. All God required under the Old Covenant was for the males to be circumcised, and He made the covenant with, spiritual, with uh, Israel, but they were not required to be converted in their hearts and minds. Now, circumcision itself is a, is a type, a symbol of conversion. But the fact that they were circumcised did not mean that they were actually converted spiritually. But spiritual conversion is implied and typified in the Old Covenant, even though it was not a prerequisite for entrance into that covenant. What do we mean by spiritual conversion? Spiritual conversion does not necessarily imply spiritual perfection, at least not immediately. 
the fact that you may be converted spiritually and that you've received the Spirit of God does not mean that you have reached perfection and that you've completely overcome your human nature. We're supposed to be striving for perfection, but you can be converted and still not yet be perfect in character. What spiritual conversion is, though, is a change of attitude. It is a turning around of one's mind that occurs when he has learned of the true God and the requirements of the spiritual law of God and begins to have a true reverence and a righteous fear of God. Not a, not, not a uh, cowering fear, but a true reverence and righteous fear of God. We read in Psalm 111 and verse 10, the fear of the eternal, the fear meaning a profound respect, awe, and reverence for the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. And what is the attitude toward God's law that is inseparable from that kind of fear of God or the eternal? In Proverbs 8, verse 13, it says, The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, to hate evil. If you truly fear God, then you will hate evil. We read in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. That is, that sums up the whole duty, the whole what God requires and expects of each of us. A real love for and respect for the true God, a deep desire to obey God and His spiritual laws, along with a hatred for evil, is spiritual conversion. And Paul described it as walking after the Spirit rather than after the flesh. It is a result of true repentance, or you might say it is how repentance is defined. And when you've reached that point where you have that kind of fear of God, you have reached the point of repentance. Now, how is spiritual conversion typified in the Old Covenant? I mentioned already circumcision, but there are other ways, a number of ways actually, in which spiritual conversion was typified in the Old Covenant. First of all, the laws themselves were spiritual laws, but applied often in limited physical ways. Yet they were living spiritual principles. And the glory of the eternal, we're told, filled the tabernacle and led Israel in their journeys. God dwelt in the midst of the tabernacle, in the midst of the camp of Israel. Now, the way the tabernacle was arranged when Israel was camped was it was right in the center of the camp. And it was surrounded by the various tribes arranged in a particular order. So that tabernacle was right in the center, right in the heart of the camp of Israel. 
And that's where God dwelt, so to speak. And we read in Exodus 40, beginning with verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The power of God, or the Spirit of God, you might say. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeyings. So here we see God leading, dwelling in, in the tabernacle and leading the people through the wilderness. And that is analogous to our relationship with God as His new covenant nation and people and our being in a sense the temple or the tabernacle of God because God dwells in us and leads us through his spirit as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16 do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you so it is a direct analogy. The cloud in the tabernacle, God through His Spirit leading the people of Israel is analogous to God dwelling in His church today and leading us, guiding us as we live in this wilderness sojourn, so to speak. In Revelation 1 verse 13, we read about a vision that John had of God's temple in heaven. Revelation 1 verse 13, it says, There in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So we see here these seven lampstands in this vision, and we see in their midst the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ. Well, what are those seven lampstands? In Revelation 1, verse 20, it says, The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. That is, the various church eras of this age. That's what they were picturing. The seven church eras of the book of Revelation. And Jesus Christ is right in their midst, leading them. That doesn't mean we're perfectly following him necessarily, but, but he's there to lead us if we're willing to be led. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse, beginning with verse 1, All our fathers were under the cloud, the cloud that we just read about, where God was dwelling in the tabernacle. All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We see that the, that the being going through the Red Sea 
and being under the cloud is a type of baptism. And all did eat the same spiritual meat and all did drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ. Then he says in verse 6, writing to the church, he says, These things were our types. That is, they were types of the church. They were types of our uh, being in a relationship with God through repentance, through conversion, through being baptized, through being led by Christ, through uh, being nurtured by His Word and His Spirit. So all those things had deep spiritual meaning, even though they, they were physical things that happened. Although spiritual conversion was not a prerequisite or requirement for entrance into the Old Covenant, it was necessary to fulfill the requirements of that covenant. Let me repeat that. Spiritual conversion was not a prerequisite for entrance into the Old Covenant, but it was necessary to fulfill the requirements of that covenant because God had told them, you are to obey my laws and my commandments. That was part of the covenant. And that's what they had agreed to do. They weren't converted, but that was the covenant. And that covenant was designed to teach spiritual faith and the need for spiritual conversion. After God gave Israel the Ten Commandments in their limited form under the Old Covenant, He said in Deuteronomy 5 verse 29, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me, and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Oh, that there were a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep my commandments. But God knew that there was not such a heart in them. He knew there was not such a heart in them, but there could have been. There could have been. Had they yielded to His law, and repented deeply of their sins and sinfulness. The weakness of the Old Covenant was not the laws that were given. The weakness of the Old Covenant was in the fact that the people were not converted and they were not required to be as members of the congregation. Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 3 that it was weak through the flesh. It was weak through the flesh because they were carnal. That's what carnal means, means fleshly. The law that was given was weak through the flesh. That is, the old covenant was weak through the flesh. And he said in Romans 9, beginning with verse 31, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. They did not seek it by faith. Godly faith is a product of God's Spirit. In Galatians 5 and verse 22, faith is listed as one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote that the gospel was preached to Israel, in Hebrews 4 and verse 2, that the gospel was preached to Israel, but the word preached 
did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And it was because they did not have real faith in the ability of God and His way to produce what was promised that Israel was blinded to the real meaning of God's law. Their lack of faith was the result of the fact that they walked not after the Spirit, but after the flesh. And their hearts were hardened, as we read in Hebrews 3 and verse 13, through the deceitfulness of sin. Their hearts were hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. They did not, had not come to fear God. They did not hate sin. And their hearts were hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 7, Israel has not obtained that which he seeks for, but the election has obtained it, that is, those among them who were converted, is what he's talking about, and the rest were blinded. And they were what, what were they blinded by? By the deceitfulness of sin, by their carnality. And so this brings us to the question, was spiritual conversion possible under the Old Covenant? Contrary to what some have assumed, the Spirit of God, as I mentioned earlier, has been offered to men ever since creation. As we mentioned, it was offered to Adam, but it was rejected. And it has been offered to others down through history. Not to all, but to some. When God reveals His law to a person or to a group of people and reproves them for their sins... He is offering them a chance to repent, uh, to repent. And God offered that opportunity to repent many times to Israel down through their history. When one repents, there's a promise that goes along with that. God promises that upon genuine repentance, God will grant His Spirit to the one who has repented. We're also told that a person will continue to have God's Spirit only as long as he continues to be in that repentant attitude and walk after the Spirit. This is a promise of God's Word. It's an inviolable promise and it's found in the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 23, we read, Turn at my reproof. And that's what repentance is, turning around changing your mind in your attitude toward God. Turn at my reproof, that is, when, when you are told you are doing wrong, then repent. And so what happens then? He says, Behold, I will pour out my Spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. So we're told that if one repents, then the promise is God will grant His Spirit and He will reveal an understanding, a spiritual understanding of the truth to that person. And this is in the Old Testament. David had God's Spirit and he knew that he could retain God's Spirit only by repentance after he had sinned, as we read earlier, in committing adultery and then murdering Uriah, David prayed, as recorded in Psalm 51, beginning with verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, 
and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David poured out his heart to God in repentance, bitterly repented of his sin, pleading with God not to take his spirit away from him. And God allowed David to continue in his grace, even though there was punishment that was imposed upon David. Even though he had repented, he did have to pay a penalty for his serious sins. But Israel, as a people, during the Old Covenant era, did not repent, except for a small number. And we read about that in Romans 11, where Paul wrote there that there is a remnant according to the election of grace. In other words, there is a small proportion of the nation who did respond to God's rebuke and reproof, who did repent, who did receive the Holy Spirit, and who received with that the gift of salvation, the promise of salvation. And these were people who lived during the Old Covenant period. So we see that, yes, spiritual conversion was possible under the Old Covenant. and The Holy Spirit was made available to people. These were individuals who sought God's promises through faith and who lived their lives in faith toward God. And that implies in obedience to God and His commandments. And those people died in faith, that is, those who did die in faith, are assured of salvation. They will be in the, in the resurrection of the just. In Hebrews 11 and verse 13, writing of these people, Paul said, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say... Such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they'd called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And, of course, what he's talking about here is being granted salvation in the resurrection and having a part in the kingdom of God. These people accomplished this by meeting the same requirements that we must meet, and that is repentance and faithful obedience to God. As we read in Acts 3 and verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We repent, we're, we be converted, our sins forgiven, so that the times of refreshing, that is, when the promises are fulfilled, when we are resurrected from the dead, may come from the presence of the Lord, that is, when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, as is explained clearly in other scriptures. In Acts 5, verse 32, it says, We are His witnesses to these things, that is, witnesses of the things that God had done, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. 
God gives his spirit to those who obey him, those who have repented and who are on the path of obedience to God. But the people of Israel, as I mentioned, continued for the most part to walk after the flesh. They did not repent. They never received the Holy Spirit. And that is the reason that the Old Covenant eventually had to be replaced by the reality which it was meant to prefigure, the New Covenant. And of course, that's what God intended all along. And so when you read in Paul's writings where he is writing to converted Christians and he seems to be saying that we are no longer under the law, he means exactly what he says. Because when Paul says such things, he is in this term, the law, referring to the old covenant. And the old covenant as far as Christians are concerned, is done away with. It is no longer in force. It has no legal claim over us. We're not under the old covenant. We're under a different covenant. The covenant God made with Israel in the wilderness was a kind of marriage covenant. And Israel being the wife in this analogous situation, the covenant being likened to marriage, Israel under this relationship was in the place of the wife and God in the place of the husband. And this is revealed various places in the Bible. For example, in Jeremiah 3 and verse 14, God speaking to Israel says, Turn, O backsliding children, says the Eternal, for I am married to you. We also read in Ezekiel 16 and verse 8, where God speaks to Jerusalem as the center of government for his nation, Jerusalem being put for the entire nation of Israel. And he said in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, Now when I passed by you and looked upon you, behold, the time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Now, various commentaries will tell you that the act of spreading the skirt was symbolizing a man taking on the matrimonial responsibility of providing for and protecting the wife. And that this phrase, spreading the skirt, in the way it's used here, is expressive of entering into a marriage relationship. And the covenant mentioned here is the covenant God made with Israel in the wilderness. And that covenant included a promise regarding Jerusalem, which was eventually to be the one true center of government and religion for Israel. And that promise is found in Deuteronomy 12, beginning with verse 10, where God said, When you cross over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around about so that you dwell in safely, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And then he tells them that they are to take their offerings and gifts to that place where the Lord would abide, that is, where it would be known as God's temple, where his name would abide, and they were to go there to worship God with their sacrifices and offerings and so forth. And eventually God chose Jerusalem to be that place where his temple was built. 
And then when the temple was built in Jerusalem, that covenant was reaffirmed. As we read in 1 Kings 8, you can read through 1 Kings 8 and see how the, the covenant was reaffirmed in Solomon's words when the temple was dedicated. So, in Ezekiel 16, we find the relationship between Israel and God as that of a wife to a husband, vice versa. And God says in verse 30 that you did the work of an imperious, whorish woman, a wife who commits adultery, who takes strangers instead of her husband. Now, the reason we're pointing this out is because a marriage covenant is binding only as long as both partners are alive. When a partner in a marriage dies, the covenant is dissolved. The covenant is no longer binding. As Paul wrote in Romans 7 and verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband, that is, from the covenant. Notice here the covenant between a husband and wife is also spoken of here as, as the law. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law or that covenant, and so she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Now, the relevance of this to our discussion is that it was God acting in the person of Jesus Christ who led Israel out of Egypt. It was God in the person of Jesus Christ who spoke the words of the covenant from Mount Sinai. And as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, they all drank of that same spiritual drink, speaking of the people of Israel in the wilderness, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The God personage that they entered into that covenant with was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He is one of the members of the Godhead. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, emptied himself at a later time of his divine glory to make himself a sacrifice as a human being to pay the penalty for our sins. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, which is death. When Jesus Christ died, that covenant became obsolescence because he died. And we are, who are physical descendants of Israel, if baptized into Christ, are also, as we read in Romans 7 and verse 4, we are also dead to the law by the body of Christ. Because through baptism, we die also, symbolically. And we are resurrected to a newness of life. So, if you're baptized into Christ, Christ died and you died. So neither is bound by the old covenant. 
a marriage covenant. And that covenant no longer has any hold or claim on us. And so we are free from the claims of the law. That is the old covenant. Now what does that imply? Now to many people what that implies is that you can just make your own rules like Adam and Eve decided to do and you can be lawless. Because you're not under the law, you're free from the law, so you don't have to obey any laws. You can just live whatever way you please, be led by your carnal mind, and God is duty-bound to forgive you and give you salvation. Is that what it means? Well, before we get into that in detail, let's consider that there is more to the nullification of the Old Covenant than the fact that the parties to it are accounted as having died. God's intention from the beginning was that the Old Covenant should be superseded by something greater. And the reason is because the Old Covenant was not of itself complete. Notice what Paul said in Galatians 3 and verse 21. If there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law, but the Scripture has concluded all under sin. And as we read earlier, the Old Covenant, though it was ordained to life, actually produced death. Because the Scripture had shown all things, that is the entire creation, meaning not everything, but virtually all creation, to be under the dominion of sin. The only exception being those few who did actually repent and submit themselves to God. And the penalty of sin is death. Why, why were all under the dominion of sin? As we read in Jeremiah 9 and verse 26, all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. That is, they were not converted. They had not repented. And so they had not received God's Spirit, the Spirit of life through righteousness. Even though they were under the old covenant, so the covenant was weak through the flesh. And so therefore in Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 18, it says there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law or the old covenant made nothing perfect, but the superinduction, as it could be translated, of a better hope by which we draw near to God. What that means is that the commandment, that is the commandment which made priests of the Levites, but broadening it in this same chapter to include the entire old covenant was nullified because of a weakness. And as we've seen, that weakness was the fleshly mind. That law, that covenant could not make those under it perfect. And that statement is repeated in Hebrews 9, verse 9 and chapter 10 and verse 1. But Paul says we have in the old covenant the superinduction of a better hope. What that means is that the basis for the better hope was the law, that is the old covenant. That is, the Old Covenant introduced something, it served as an introduction to something greater. The better hope was introduced by the Old Covenant and is induced from it. In induction in logic is the process of inferring or aiming at a general principle 
or a law from observation of particular instances or a conclusion reached by this process. And there are many particular instances that were given under the Old Covenant that are an expression of greater, more general principles or laws. For example, the specific hope of sacrifices under the Levitical priesthood was a limited and temporary forgiveness of sin. But induced from that, in what it typified was the permanent and total sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ. And it is through that sacrifice and the eternal priesthood that administers it that we draw near to God, not through the Levitical priesthood any longer, but through that priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, as we read in Hebrews 7, verse 24. And so it is with every part of the Old Covenant. From each specific feature, we can induce a general principle, which is the corresponding feature of the New Covenant, that is, the spiritual covenant. And while the Old Covenant was the basis for the better hope, or you might say the introduction to it, the Old Covenant promises and provisions were not the perfection, realization, or completion or fulfillment of that better hope. Because before the better hope could be fulfilled, there had to be a fundamental change in the people. And the covenant had to be expanded to include the full spirit, spiritual reality of all of God's law. So as Paul wrote, if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place should have been sought for the second. This is from Hebrews chapter 8 beginning with verse 7. For finding fault with them, that is, the people of Israel, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Eternal, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Eternal. So the sum of this is that the Old Covenant graphically illustrated by its failure through the weakness of human flesh, the absolute necessity of God's Holy Spirit for true righteousness and the development of the character necessary for eternal life. Mankind cannot obey God's law without the power of the Holy Spirit to help him, to empower him. That's one of the reasons the law was given to make that point clear. And it amply, through the history of what we've seen with Israel under the Old Covenant, it amply demonstrated that point. In a later sermon, we'll continue our discussion of the two covenants and how the New Covenant supplies that which was lacking under the Old Covenant.